and it should encourage all of us. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there to Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 through 24. We'll be looking here again and looking at this concept, the, the second half of this on submission and wives submitting to their husbands within the context of a Christian marriage. There's an old adage that, said, that says hard cases make for bad law. Hard cases make for bad law. The point of the saying is that if you take the hardest cases, the hard edge cases, and you try to write laws around them, you, you will miss the general principle that you want to get at. And as, as I warned us last week as we go through this, we have to make sure as we read Ephesians 5, through 24, and then as we'll see all the way down through 33, that talks about Christian marriage, that what is being presented to us is not the hard case. It is the, uh, the, the case of what a Christian marriage should look like. This is how it should work itself out. And as I noted last week, and I would just point again, that this doesn't cover all the hard edge cases. There are, there are issues that come up within marriage that have to be dealt with with other principles within the context of our marriages. And so we need to keep that in mind. So we need to listen closely to what Paul is writing here and has written in Ephesians 5, 22 through 24, but I'm also going to, as we, we continue this week, to see the caution that we need to make sure we don't misapply or misinterpret what he's saying to us. So if you've got your Bibles there, I, I want to go back and I want to review just a little bit of where we've been last week. One is I, I want to show again... There's four important, important points of context as you start looking at this. One is, as you're, you're walking into this, you'll notice in 5.18, this is talking to us about being filled with the Spirit. So there's this overall context that it walks into, be filled with the Spirit, and then he says, by, by submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And this is what Paul is doing. He's building out, what does it look like to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ? Now, he's very specifically going to take on three cases here in Ephesians 5 and then into 6. That is the case of the husband and wife in a Christian marriage, the case of, of parents and really specifically fathers and their children within a Christian, Christian household, as well as, and we will deal with this difficult topic of master and slave relationships within a Christian household that he takes on as well. But you'll see here that what, what Paul is doing is giving very specific relational examples. What does this look like? That's the first thing. The second is that you'll see that Christian submission is compelled by our reverence for Christ. There's something that compels us into Christian submission, that we are doing it out of reverence for Christ. The third is the specific relationships he is addressing submission is within the household. Now that may be somewhat obvious, but it's important because passages like this will get extended in ways outside of a Christian household and say, well, this is what it must mean in other areas. Let me give you a quick example. In our school here, uh, we actually don't do any corporal punishment in our school. And we basically say the reason for that is that is not the uh, calling and responsibility of our school. That is not given to us. Such choice is done by parents not by the educators they've been entrusted to. And so we don't extend what is intended for the household into how we do our, our discipline inside of our school. Similarly, you've got to be careful that we don't extend what Paul says is supposed to happen within a Christian marriage into every male and female relationship that exists, right? And so we've got to be careful. This doesn't mean that you know, wives submit to every guy on the street. I'm going to tell you right now, you probably know this, not a good idea right? Some of you are thinking about your brothers right now. That's okay. They're okay too. I know. I can see the smiles. But uh, we, it's very specific to the household context. The third, or the fourth, excuse me, is the context of all these relationships is a, and note this, a Christian home. What Paul is talking about and writing to here is two believers that are married, a husband and wife, and how they are to relate within a Christian marriage and then what that looks like within their home. Now, I want to point out what submission means generally, and there's two really important points. One is, the general idea of submission is to come under the order of somebody. 
to order under. It's two words that are just combined together. Uh, hupo, which we, we have the word under from. We actually, you know this as low, as in if you have hypoglycemia, you have low blood sugar, right? And so that's the same prefix, hupo, or we pronounce it hypo in English. And then tasso, which is mean to order. And as I referenced last week, you can look at, for example, in Matthew 28, where Christ tassos his disciples. He directs them. He orders them to go do something. And so the word just kind of putting together means at a very, very rough level to order under. Now, that doesn't get the nuance of, of the word itself, and this is what's important. One is you need to realize that submission, that word is chosen very specifically instead of subjection, right? Subjection means I am going to force you to do it, <clears throat> right? As I, I shared the illustration last week, <clears throat> when dads are having fun with their, their sons or even their daughters, right? Sometimes you take their arms and they don't have enough strength to resist you. And what do you do? You poke them with them and you kind of slap on them and they, they, they love you for it. That's, you know, my five children said one time, the reason you have five kids is so that when you grow old, all your major areas of life will be addressed. So, you know, my yard needs to be done, computers. That way, if anything ever happens to mom, all your major areas. I said, no, 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 no. I know how honorary I am. So my, my hope is that um, one of you will take care of me, to which my oldest immediately rep, uh, responded, oh, when you get old, I'll take care of you. And so we've narrowed it down to four, and I'm now looking to their spouses, right? Uh, evidently, whatever I did with, you know, subjection didn't work out so well for me. Submission is a choice, and that's the point here, is what goes on, and we don't see this so much, but, but here in the Greek, it's what's called the middle voice. It's a reflective action, meaning I'm choosing to do something. That's the idea that's carrying so that's why the translators chose the word submission rather than subjection here. It's not wives subject yourself to your husband or husbands subject your wife. That's not how it's phrased. It is wives and the idea is submit, make the choice to come under the leadership of your husband. The second thing you have to realize is the motivation or reasoning for this has to be clarified to understand why you're submitting, right? Sometimes you are submitting because you have basically no other choice or no real other choice. I used to do this with my kids. I think I've shared this before. I would always ask my children, I'd tell them to do something. I'd, I'd end with a rhetorical question, yes, sir, or no, sir. So if I say, go clean your room, yes, sir, or no, sir. What's the implied answer? Well, to my youngest child, it was no, sir. The rest of them figured out it was yes, sir, but it was yes, sir, I'll go do it. And I always told them they had two choices. They could go do it or they could get punished and then go do it, which really is not much of a choice. So what they would do, they just go do it. Why? Because dad said, you know, I have to go do it. That is falling under my instruction more because of fear of, of punishment or discipline than it is because I just willingly want to do this, right? Well, here you have to realize in context, there is reason given of why wiser to submit to their husbands. And I'm going to go back. This has to do with reverence for Christ. So the other thing is to look at the contour of the passage. And we went through this last week. I'll quickly survey this again, this paragraph of Ephesians 2, 22 through 24. You'll notice the, the command is wives submit to your own husbands. Uh, it's very specific. It's wives. The actual verb submit is actually not there, which is not unusual in Greek. It just said you were to submit to one another, and then it says wives to your husbands. It's like, here's an overt example of what you're supposed to do. There are other passages that's repeated in Colossians and 1 Timothy, um, or excuse me, Colossians and 1 Peter, and their wives are to submit to the husbands. Uh, so this is not unusual, uh, either to Paul or to Peter in Scripture, that submissions to occur. But notice, it's to your own husbands, right? Not to anyone else's husband, you know. The one that you picked, that's the one you submit to, right? As I jokingly say, we all make bad choices in life. Dion signed up for the lifetime plan. So, um, you know, submit to your own That's a joke. It's not as bad. You can talk to her afterwards. I think, I think she's going to keep me for another year or two. So, um, But uh, to your own husbands. The second thing is that's the command, wives submit to your own husbands. The second is how. There's, there's the motivation, the, the, the manner, as to the Lord. This is, it's like when you submit to your husband, it's you're submitting to Christ. This underlies that motivation that you have to look for. Why am I doing this? Well, it has something to do with Christ. Why? 
Well, that, for the husband is the head of the wife. That's, that's what he says. The reason you're doing this is the husband the head of the wife. We're going to get into that more this morning. And he says, well, in what way? Well, even as Christ is head of the church, that's how the husband's head of the wife. Oh, that's interesting. Because it's revealing something. And then he summarizes it. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. And last week, I began begging this question. What do you mean by in everything? In short, this doesn't mean in every jot and tittle, everything he says is always right, you have to do it, that's what must be done, but it's a sphere. There is no part of your marital relationship that you look at in your life and go, that's not a part that I'm not willing to fall under my husband's leadership. Now we're going to talk about that more because there is, as I said last week, there's real risk in that. There's real risk in that. We know this, right? We know this empirically in other relationships, uh, we worry about governments that we fall under, right? There's real risk in who we have to submit to. Uh, we worry about, you know, I'm sure as you've had children, the coaches they had and the influence those coaches will, will have on their lives. Uh, we worry about in the relationships that we put ourselves under. Even as you decide, will, will you attend this church? Is this the church that you want to join locally, right? One of the concerns is, well, what's the leadership like? There's a real concern because that leadership's going to ask us to do things. And if I'm supposed to submit to them, there's actually, it says in Hebrews, obey your leaders, the shepherds, because we're supposed to be giving you care, watch over your souls. But if we're not doing that, there's real risk. And so we understand this in other relationship. That is just as true in marriage. There's real risk, which bluntly, one of those quick applications, and I would tell this my own daughters, as well as my sons, but in, the case, in this case, it's wives. You need to take real seriously who you choose to marry, right? I've tried to convince them arranged marriage is the way to go. I mean, let's just be honest here, right? Let's be honest. Who's, who's wiser, older, has seen all the mistakes, can make the better choice? His name is Dad. But I'm just telling you right now, my kids aren't signing up for that. So, right? I don't think so, Dad. Um, in reality, what I have to encourage my own children is make wise choices. Be careful who you choose to marry. That goes both ways, but that's especially true, ladies, as you make decisions about who will you marry. Because there's real risk, and, and that should be understood. The, the passage, Paul understands this, because there's constraints that get put around this. And we went through this some last week. So let me kind of finish up <clears throat> last week, excuse me, <clears throat> where the 10 things that submission is not. Meaning submission within marriage, what is it not? What does this not mean? Because this helps us constrain it in an appropriate biblical way so that we don't just think this is carte blanche for the wife has to do anything and everything the husband says and it doesn't matter what happens. So I want to go back through, we went through six last week, I'm going to go through those and finish up these last four. And then I want to turn our attention to what does submission within the context of marriage mean? What does that actually mean? Let me go through the first six and I'll just comment quickly as we go through them. Number one, it does not mean the husband is always right. Now, ladies, I realize some of you are going, yes, that's empirically obvious. I don't need to prove it, but I will make the biblical argument, and I did last week, that in 1 Samuel 25, as well as in Acts chapter 5, you see two very specific examples. Abigail has to save her own husband. His name was Nabal. Nabal means fool. <laughs> don't name your children that. <laughs> Now, part of the question is, that that, is that the nickname he got later? Maybe that's not his real name. That's part of the argument. I mean, like, he was, he was a, I mean, the, the Greek word is idiot. And uh, <clears throat> he rebelled against David. David was about to slaughter his entire family. And Abigail intervened and saved her family. She says, don't, basically, she said, don't listen to the fool, listen to me. And she talks David off the ledge, and he doesn't kill him. Of course, David goes on to marry her, but that's a different story. In Acts chapter 5, <clears throat> Ananias and Sapphira get together, and they end up doing something that costs both in their life. They make a promise to God that they will give from the proceeds of the sale of property they had. They don't follow through on that. Sapphira does what her husband, what they had decided to do, and falls under that leadership. He walks in. Peter confronts him. He lies, drops dead. Sapphira shows up. And if she was wise, she would have said, my husband has sinned, but she doesn't. She goes along with the story they had decided they would go with, and she says, 
no, we didn't, we, we gave you the money. And basically Peter says, I know you're lying. And she drops dead as well. And it says, fear arose in Jerusalem. It should. It should. God takes our oaths, including our oaths of what we will give very seriously. But just two biblical examples is that the husband is not always right. And in fact, sometimes the wife has to intervene and say, that is not the right thing to do. Secondly, it does not mean that the wife must do whatever the husband wants. <clears throat> I used a, a greater to lesser argument, basically, to say that's true uh, in our marriages. We are called, and I made the argument from, uh, as we look in Scripture and Romans, um, that we are to submit to government. We actually said that this morning together in Titus chapter uh, 3, right? But we can see from biblical examples, and I argued out of the book of Acts, specifically in the case of Peter and John, as they are standing before um, uh, the leadership, they actually have been told, would you stop preaching in the name of Christ? Actually, would is way too. Stop preaching in the name of Christ. That's what they were told. And they basically say, look, we can't. We have to obey God, not man. And my point being is that <clears throat> though we are supposed to submit to, to government, to use our Lord's words, we are to render to Caesar what is Caesar's, unto God what is God's. There are times in which we are called as Christians out of an act of righteousness and obedience to our Lord that we don't follow what government says. Now, I realize people like to use that clause for everything, Okay. You still need to pay your taxes, even if you don't like them, right? You still need to obey the laws, even if you don't like them, unless that law compels you to do something unrighteous. And that's what Peter was saying when they responded, like, look, you judge what you think is right, but we can't obey you. We have to obey God. Ladies, that's true in marriage as well. And, and guys, you need to understand that. Men, if you ask your wife to do something that you know is sinful or that it becomes obvious is, your, your act should then be repentance and say, we, we should not do that. Guys, you, and as we'll see in headship, you should never compel your wife to do something sinful. And ladies, if he does, it is your call because you are obeying your Lord, Jesus Christ, that you must confront the sin at hand. Now, there's ways to do that gently. There's ways to do that in ways that you can, can work through that, right? Romans 2, 4, you know, you can use kindness to give opportunity for repentance. It's what God did with us. His patience and forbearance with our sin gives us opportunity to repent. So sometimes it is patience that you extend to your husband. But let's be very clear. There are times in which if you were asked to do sinful things, you should not do them. And, and that's part of the argument I made. Third is it does not mean the husband is more qualified to make the decision, now, you can, we're going to look more at the Proverbs 31 woman as an example this morning, but if you go look, one of the things that guys that are married and, and those you guys that are looking to get married, you need to realize when your wife is right, she's right, and you say she is given sound judgment and you rejoice in it. And so this doesn't mean just because you're the guy that you're more qualified to make the decision. Right? Sometimes our wives are more, ex more of experts, know areas in life way better than we do. And if you're wise, you will, you will listen to her. Right? And that can extend in a lot of areas. Right? It, it may be, hey, this is how we, we manage our finances. It may be how we do investments. It may be how you respond to your children. Right? I'll give you an example out of my own life. I'm a dad, and... Let me rephrase that. I'm a guy, and I'm sitting, I'm watching, I'm watching a television show, and it's probably some war movie. I, look, I love sci-fi movies and war flicks, all right? Um, I watch chick flicks because I love my wife. I'm just going to tell you right now, I don't generally watch them as a rule, right? But I was watching, I actually think I remember the movie, I won't name it, but I was watching, it was particularly violent because it was war scenes, and my wife had to walk up to me and say, you realize you have little eyes that are watching that along with you. And I look over, and I've got three boys that are looking with eyes about this big around. Yeah. <laughs> Whoops. What? It's time to watch Blue's Clues. What, what is, you know, uh, and I know it's, uh, you know, oh, I can do Veggie Tales. I can sing a solo on Veggie Tales for you. 
if you like to talk to tomatoes, if a squash come Anyway, so you, you get the idea of what we watched growing up. I had a Bob the Builder kid. I had a Blues Clues kid, you know. Uh, you know, mail time, mail time, mail. I knew it all. But anyway, so the point being is that little eyes and my wife rightly pointed out in my life what I was doing was very, very unwise, right? And you could extend that in a lot of other genres of movies and what you're, and just a, a simple example, be wise. Because I love, you've seen the commercial, there's that latest car commercial where the dad is, they're going down the road and the, guy, the guy's listening to the radio and, he, and the radio guy's, and there was a bear squatch in the, in the woods and uh, his son's in the back seat with eyes about this and he goes, what's a bear squatch? And the dad's like, oh, well, it's a combination of a bear and a, oh, we should change the radio because the mother gave him a look, right? Because that's wise. You don't want to expose, you're scaring the child. He's not old enough. And, and so you need to be wise and listen to your wife's voice. The next is, it does not mean the wife should support her husband even when sinning. I extended that from him not always being right. You can see that again in the, in the story of both Abigail and Sapphira. It's just an aspect of what it means not to be right. And if he asks you not to sin, that's important. Excuse me, if he asks you to sin, <laughs> that's important that you not do that. It doesn't mean the husband's more intelligent. This is another extension as he's not always right. Just because you're the guy doesn't mean you're the smartest person in the room. Now, I realize some people would argue they're the dumbest. You're also not the dumbest. It all varies. I understand. But all the jokes that go on. But the reality is, so you're a guy. So what? That doesn't make you the smartest person in the room. It doesn't make you the most. You're the husband. Okay. Right? It's all right. I mean, I'll, I'll take an example. I am not particularly gifted in, um, in repairing things. Thank God for YouTube, right? That's, that's how, yeah. Um, I'm looking over, like, you know, how do I fix a car? If it's on YouTube, I can do it. Well, and then you call the friend that actually has the skills with the right, with the right tools, but, you know, you fix it. But one of my sons is particularly gifted in that area. So even when he was, he's 12 years old, I'm like, uh, come here, buddy, what, how do you fix this, right? Because he definitely knew better than I did. And, you know, oh, go the way, Dad, and he'd fix it. Okay, it was a ploy for me. I, never, I, haven't, I didn't do a honeydew list for a decade because I had a 12-year-old that did it. But, uh, you know, you can figure it out. Not the smartest person in the room. The next one is it does not mean that the husband is to be domineering over the wife. Okay, something you have to remember. This is a Christian marriage. When you are in your marriage, you bring everything of what it means to be Christian. Okay? It's not like, this is what it means to be Christian, and here's what it means to be a husband. Okay? So it's not like I'm going to apply what it means to be Christian to everybody else, but my wife gets a different treatment. It's not how it works. She's actually the prime example of how you should be interacting with other Christians. And our Lord says in Matthew 20, verses 25 through 28, but Jesus called them and said, and he's talking to his disciples, and it's really funny, the context is they're arguing over who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom, Right? And then he says to him, but Jesus called to them and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the son of man came not to serve, be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Okay, that guys applies in our marriages. You serve. You don't domineer. That's, that's, that's how godless Gentiles do it, according to our Lord. That's not how Christians do it. It's different. Which gets to the seventh, which is, it does not mean the husband can demand and have his wife do whatever he wants. Now, I realize this is kind of a combination of what came before, but I think it needs to be explicitly said it doesn't mean that the husband can just say, I want this done, I'm the husband, you're the wife, do it. That is not what is being talked about here. One is, let's reference back, consider what, did, what happened when their wives, if they would have followed the Abigail and Sapphira, if Abigail would have followed her husband, death was, was to come. Sapphira did, death came, right? For, and realize, that's death for ungodly reasons, Right? Sometimes we are self-sacrificing and we just, you decide it is, there are missionaries that as a couple decide we're going to go into a land where our, it'll probably cost us our life. That's not godlessness, that's godliness. 
But this is what we're saying is just because a husband demands it doesn't mean the wife has to do it. Again, you can reference back to Matthew 20, verses 25 through 28, and how leadership is supposed to be exercised. Or I can point you to 1 Peter 3, 7, where this comes out of that wives are to submit to their husbands, and, and the husbands are addressed and told, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to, to the woman as the weaker vessel. Real quick note, weaker probably means more vulnerable, not necessarily weaker in strength. She's the more vulnerable vessel because of the position she's put herself in. Since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. You realize, gentlemen, the way, in, guys that are married, the way in which you lead your, your family, particularly how you relate to your wife, has direct implications on your prayers? I mean, we'd like to set that aside and think God doesn't care. He cares very much. He actually says that our disobedience, particularly in the way in which we relate in our marriage and how leadership occurs, if it occur, occurs poorly and in ungodly ways, it affects your prayers. That's, that's pretty heavy. We need to take our marriages seriously. And guys, how we relate to our wives, and, and what it doesn't mean is you can just demand whatever you want. That's not what submission is. The eighth thing is it does not mean the wife is to, quote, just take it. Right? This doesn't just mean when, when a husband is out of control and abusive and physically threatening. I mean, if, I'm, I'm just telling you right now. Let me, I'll give you a very simple way to respond. If you have a physically abusive husband, you know what your next step should be? You should call the cops. If that man is threatening you physically and life and limb and putting you and or your children at risk, Submit to the authorities that are in government. That's what you should do. Now, I realize for some of you, and, and you're saying, okay, i got to wait, because this is one of the hard edge cases. Did he go far enough? You have to debate these things. And I realize sometimes you may go, look, I've got to seek some wisdom to make that decision. But when you know he's crossed that line, and your life and limb is a threat, you or your children, you know what it says? It says, submit to governmental authorities. And what should be done is that should be intervention. Get out of the situation doesn't mean you have to divorce them on the spot. That's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is remove yourself from the situation. And that may mean you have to call authorities to stop it. And that is not unrighteous. That is not disobedient to your Lord. That is doing exactly what would be expected by our Lord, which is we are not going to allow someone in power to take abusive actions against those who are vulnerable. And what we need to see is, is it, it, what we're saying here is you don't just have to take it. Colossians 3.19 which is a parallel passage to here in Ephesians, says that husbands are to love your wives and do not be harsh with them. It actually is to make bitter. Uh, it's, it's, it's the same word that was used to describe when there was bitter water in the wilderness. It's this taste of bitterness. Don't, don't put a taste of bitterness. So here's a lesser to greater argument. If you're not to do something to embitter your wife, you definitely aren't going to do something that's going to threaten her life. Does that make sense? They take it a step, I mean, if you look in Colossians 3, 16 and 17, it says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do, deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to the God, the Father, through him. I mean, realize that's 16 to 17. Wives, submit to your husbands. The next command, and then right after that is, husbands, love your wives, do not be harsh. Scripture is very clear. That ladies, you don't just have to take it. That's not the way a Christian husband is to act. I would also point to as if you, what is an exemplary husband supposed to do? Well, one thing you look at is what are elders, overseers in the church supposed to do? You can look in 1 Timothy chapter 3 as well as in Titus chapter 1 in which you look at, if you're going to be qualified to be an overseer in the church, you have to be sober-minded, self-controlled. Not violent, but gentle. He says this to Titus as well, that you are not to be quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent. You're to be self-controlled. My point being is, if you want to see what is expected of those who are to be exemplary in the body of Christ, you look at what the overseer is to be, and these men are supposed to be exemplary in the way in which they control themselves. 
particularly it says manage your own household well, it implies by the connection of this, these things will not go on in your household. Why? Christians don't do that. I mean, that's, that's the basic argument Paul's making. So, ladies, it's not just you have to agree and, and do whatever your husband says and just take it. Number nine is it does not mean that the wife cannot speak up and disagree with her husband. Right? It doesn't mean she can't disagree. If you're looking in Proverbs 31, you, you might flip over there. We're gonna, I'm going to uh, use this as an example from the Old Testament to see this. Now, here's the interesting thing. If you're looking at Proverbs 31, it it picks up in verse 10. If you look at verse 1, it appears, now there's some debate, but it looks like what actually has happened is the mother of a king has written to him, King Lemuel, and said, hey, this is what you're supposed to do. And it warns him about, hey, don't get drunk as a king, because if you take hard wine, you make bad decisions. There's a whole list there that you're not supposed to do. But then then you get down to Proverbs 31, verse 10. Some would argue this is actually a separate kind of passage. There seems to be a connection if not from King Lemuel himself, at least, from, at least from the person, Solomon, that put Proverbs together, it said, these two relate to one another. Especially if it's Solomon, who had way too many wives to count. But basically he's saying, this is what you should look for if you're looking for an excellent woman. You want, you want a wife that's excellent, look for this. And he starts listing out these things, right? This is, I know this sermon probably comes every Mother's Day, but I, I want you, not every Mother's Day, but you know, a lot of Mother's Day, you get Proverbs 31. But the reality is, is that to look at what is being said about her in the context of a marriage. Well, take note, she's an excellent wife who can find. She is far more precious than jewels there in verse 10. The heart of her husband trusts in her and he will have no lack of gain. It literally says, she's so good, put your trust in her, right? I don't know what to do. Hey, what do you think you should do? I think we should do this. That sounds like a great idea. Let's do that. Trust her, right? It goes on to say, she opens her mouth with wisdom. She's wise. And the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. There's wisdom to be heard, wives speaking to the husband. Now, I realize, like, look, look, guys, it doesn't, this doesn't mean your wife is always right, right? That's not what this is saying either. Any more than the husband's always right. But it is wise to listen to one another. And very specifically, it doesn't mean the husband goes, well, whatever I says is the wisest thing. It's not true. That's not what it means. You should listen to your wives. And, and then 10th is, it does not mean that the wife cannot make money, make more money than her husband. Okay? This is probably even more so in our day and age because ladies are able to have jobs. Um, I keep encouraging Dion, you need to find an independently wealthy father that will give us a lot of money, but evidently she's got the one she's got, so I don't get extra money. I don't know how it works. But anyway, of course, she would point out, she's like, well, what about your, your dad? I'm like, well, you know, actually, our dads are very generous. Let me make a joke out of it. But uh, I'm just saying, if Dion makes more money, all right, I'm in. The reality is it doesn't matter. If you look at Proverbs 31, she's managing a household. I mean, that's what she's doing. She's having to manage this enterprise. And it's a household because you're living in an agrarian society that largely this is what you had to do. So basically, she's having to order a bunch of people around and manage the chaos that is managing a home. And that doesn't, the implication of this isn't, okay, so they have to stay home, be barefoot and pregnant, they don't ever leave the house. That's not what's going on. In Proverbs 31, what's actually going on is it's saying, hey, listen to her because she knows what she's doing. She has to manage a large household. Especially if you're a king, the number of servants and all that's going on, and notice how it speaks about her handling money. One is if you, you, you look in Proverbs 31, it, it says she considers a field and buys it. So I guess this is the life purpose statement for every real estate agent that's a woman, right? I mean, right? she just buys a field. With the fruit of her hand, she plants a vineyard. She sees a property worthy of investment, buys it, and starts building it out. What's being described in Proverbs 31? You look on down, it says she perceives that her merchandise is profitable, right? She can make money. So what does she do? Her lamp does not go out at night. She starts making the merchandise. She's cranking it out. This is a hardworking woman. And then in 24, she makes linen garments and sells them. She delivers sashes to the merchant. She's literally a supplier. She's like, here you go, sell this stuff, and she's making money. My, My point being is, The Bible doesn't condemn women for having jobs and making money. That's not what's going on. 
Now, there are other implications here that you can look at. You know, there are wisdom decisions to be made in how you raise children. There are times when it's probably better for a mom not to work outside the home, but, you know, if she's able to, she can work in the home and raising children. I mean, I, we could talk about that later. That's not really the point this morning, but the point being is it doesn't mean that she has to make less than a husband. That's, guys, if she does, rejoice that God has, been blessed, has blessed you with a wife that, has, that is able to, to uh, provide financial gain for you. I just point to verse 31 of Proverbs 31. Give her the fruit of her hands and let her works uh, be praised. Let her works praise her in the gates. Okay, the gates is the public arena. Here's a really simple, guys, I'm going to tell you, if you're married or you're getting married, you want to get it good with your wife, go brag about her in public. That's what Proverbs 31 says. Let her work. She's going to be talked about in the gates. They're going to talk about it in public because that's how good she is. You know? <clears throat> so you want to talk about your wife? Things. I'm going to walk through these. So Paul calls wives submit to your husbands. And then the phrase, in, ask to the Lord, and then in verse 23 it says, For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. This is a reasoning from analogy. That's, that's what's going on. Now, let me, I'm going I'm to spend some quality time on the first one. And the last four points we'll, we'll kind of spend a shorter time on. Number one, what submission within marriage does mean is this. There is no area of the marriage the wife should not look to submit to her husband in. None. Now, remember, this is within the context of a Christian marriage. And there are issues that 1 Peter deals with in 1 Peter uh, about submitting within a marriage that either is, an, um, is ungodly in some way, either a non-believing husband or husband who's not submitting to the Word of God. But here, within a Christian marriage, the wife should be looking to submit to her husband in everything, is, is the phrase. It's the sphere. There's no area that you're not looking to fall under your husband's leadership. I want to make an argument out of Genesis about what this headship means. So if you've got your Bibles, turn over to the very beginning, and in Genesis chapter 2 and 3, I'm going to walk through. Now, we're not going to read everything. I'm going to hit the highlights, but hopefully this will help you see the biblical argument of why the Bible considers the man to be head. What's being argued here. In Genesis chapter 2, in verse 16 and 17, Adam, the man, is given primary responsibility of what's to be done or not to be done. If you're looking in Genesis 2, 16 and 17, you're going to see Eve's not even on the scene. She hasn't been created yet. And God tells Adam, and the Lord God commanded the man, saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat, of it, you surely, or you will surely die. You see, Eve's not here, and the man is given responsibility, and I would say primary responsibility for what's going on. This has nothing to do with Eve's intelligence. It has nothing to do with the fact that Eve can't understand it. It's nothing like that. What God has done is he said, okay, I've given it to you, Adam. You are now responsible for this. Then if you look in Genesis 2, 20 and 23, God creates Eve as a helper, is the actual word used. It says in verse 20 of chapter 2, the man gave names to all the livestock, to the birds of the heavens, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. God marches all these animal bodies, and Adam, and Adam realizes none of these match. This was the first Sesame Street, right? None of these match me. They don't. There was nothing that could help him carry out what he was supposed to do. And so the Lord God's caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. He slept. He takes one of his ribs. He closed up the place where the flesh was at. The rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And then the man says, this is at last, this is poetry. This is the last bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She will be called woman because she was taken out of man. She's like me. I mean, that's the point. Go back to Genesis chapter 1. We're created in God's image, male and female. He created them. 
we are all created in the image of God. But what Adam's doing here is, finally, I now see the one that can help me carry out what God has asked to be done. They can't be, as you'll see, then gives them a command, they can't be, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth unless you have a man and a woman. Now, I can argue later, this actually gives us basis for why we understand marriage between one man and one woman. There's a whole extended biblical argument there, but just see here what has happened. Adam was alone. God gives him a helper to carry this out. Now, helper in and of itself does not mean inferior. The same word for helper is used of God throughout the Old Testament, that God is the helper of man. You can't read into the word itself and says that means God's inferior to man, right? It's not how the word works. This means that someone to come and carry out the purpose for which has been set forth. That's what the idea is. You go on down in Genesis 2.24, it says what? Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. The point is they are to be and act as one. There's a reason when you get married, very directly, you want to keep your parents out of the marriage. It's not because you don't love your parents. It's because that's not what God designed your parents for. They designed your spouse to be the one that you act as one flesh together. Right? That's how you act. So now they are to act as one. Notice, Adam is given what? You eat of any tree of knowledge of good and evil, except the, or eat of any tree except the knowledge of good and evil. Eve is created, and then God says, now you're going to act as one. Now, there's a lot of assumption that goes in in the fall, which I'm going to read next. Did Adam have to tell Eve what the command is? Probably. Did God tell it to her? Could have. We don't know because the scripture is silent on it. It doesn't really say it. But obviously, Eve knows what the command is. Now, watch who's held responsible. In Genesis 3, 9 through 13, But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of the, uh, I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman who you gave to me to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate it. You want to talk about deflection, right? Wasn't me. She made me. I mean, it was her. God has none of it when you look at this. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Notice who God comes looking for. He comes looking for Adam. Because Adam is the one he gave primary responsibility to to make sure sin doesn't occur. And Adam was an utter failure. Right? Then he says, okay, and he goes, and then he talks to Eve. But the first one held, it's not that Eve isn't held responsible, but Adam is the one that's seen to be responsible for sin coming into the world. In fact, Paul later argues in Romans that sin entered the world through one man, referring to Adam. And you read the story, but, but Eve's the one, it was Eve that got to see, yeah, but Adam is held responsible because he's supposed to be doing something to ensure the sin doesn't occur. Then you look at the judgment, it says, the judgment of God against the woman, to the, to the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. I don't think I have to explain that. Ask a, a lady that's had a child. My wife's one response to this was, they didn't have epidurals yet. All right? Notice the second part, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. I'm going to make a point here about this. That same structure your desire shall be contrary to your husband and he shall rule over you. Genesis 4, 7. When God exercises judgment on Cain, he tells Cain that sin's desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Exact same, exact same structure and words, just two different sets of parties. Notice the battle for control within marriage is a result of the fall. Sin is what introduces the struggle for leadership in the marriage. Now, you have to take this in context, right? It goes both ways. One of the reasons, lady, you will struggle with some, you know, in your marriage with your husband's leading, because they're being sinful in areas, right? That sin is on them, not on you. 
That's what happened with Adam. Vice versa, ladies, there are times that sin is going to be in your life, and you're going to struggle because you're going to want what you want and not what he wants. And there may be sinful things going on there. The point being is that headship, the man being head or the leader in marriage, was a created design. Right? That was designed before the fall ever occurred. That's why when we see the principle of headship or leadership of the husband in marriage, it's grounded in the created design, not in the fall. You see this because what the fall brings about is the curse of the fall for the woman is what brings contention about headship of the husband. That's actually what's going on in Genesis 3.16, the second half. That contention, that battle you feel, that's part of the result of the fall. Now, sometimes that's because the husband's sinful, and sometimes that's because the wife is sinful, right? It's not a one-way street. But nonetheless, what I want you to understand is that headship within marriage, it's not like, oh, this is a curse of the fall, and therefore can be over, is, is therefore gone somehow when you come to Christ. Actually, take the fall out, and the Bible's still talking about the headship of man. That's the way you read the narrative story of what's going on in Genesis, so that's why I would say the basic conclusion is there is no area of the marriage a wife should not look to submit to her husband in. This was within a Christian marriage. This is created by design. Now let me finish with these four points, and we'll go through this within the next five minutes or less. I'm going I'm to, as it were, power through this just so we have a, a complete picture. The second thing I would tell you is the wife should diligently and intentionally seek to show her husband respect. We're going to deal with this idea of respect more. It's actually the word phobia in Greek, which we get phobia from. <laughs> and, uh, it's actually phobos in, or phobos in Greek, but phobia in English, the word fear. But I want to point out something because I don't want you to walk out of the thing. I have to walk around on eggshells fearing my husband. If you do, there's something wrong. That means he's not doing things in godly ways. Or maybe something else is broken in your marriage. It could be something other you may be struggling because look, I, let me just be real honest, ladies. If you had bad male leadership in the past, whether it be your dad or other men you've run into, and then you get married, it's not like that fear is going to disappear about your husband. Okay? You're going to over, you're gonna have to work through that. Guys, if you, if you marry a, a lady that's like that, your call, 1 Peter 3, 7, is to live with her in an understanding way. Don't look at her and say, suck it up. You say, hold a minute, there's a reason why this fear is there. And you're going to live with an understanding way. But that's not what the word is trying to get at here. That's why it's translated in 533, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see she respects her husband. That's the word phobos or fear, phobia that we get it from. But you'll notice, I looked, I didn't look at every modern translation. I looked about 10 of them. It's the word reverence. You look at the King James, which was done now, right, 1611. We're well over 300 years. It is the word reverence. I looked at the Bishop's Bible, which goes back to that time period. Reverence. The only translation I could find where it actually translated fear is actually Tyndale, which predates the King James. My point being is this. The King James translators and others have understood there are different nuances of the way you can understand this word. And it's not fear in the sense of trepidation. It is reverence as in respect for the person who has been put in authority. But you want to look to seek to respect your husband. That's important. Third is the wife should be kind to her husband. You know why? You're a Christian. Right? Ephesians 4.32 Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as Christ forgave you. Okay, that doesn't extend to everybody except your spouse. It actually, your spouse should be your first neighbor extended to them. So ladies, be kind to your husbands. I'll just be honest, we appreciate it. We really do. Because I need a lot of kindness. Fourth is the wife should look, live sacrificially with, within her marriage. Go back to the beginning of this. If you look back in Ephesians uh, 5.2, um, it actually tells you what? That we are to live sacrificially with one another. Again, one another, that includes your spouse. So the wife should look sacrificial in her marriage. And, and guys, I, I know you can read ahead. You more so. Fifth is the wife must love and treat her husband as herself. Greatest commandment, 
Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, strength. And second unto it is love your neighbor as yourself. In your life, if you're married, you know who your first neighbor is? It's your spouse. Love your husband. Treat him as if it was yourself. So here's the conclusion, and what I want to leave us with a, with a parallel thought to what I left with last week. There's this great quote that, um, that uh, Ray Ortland has. It says, marriage is not a human invention. It is a divine revelation. And I think you can argue that right out of Genesis chapter 2 and 3, particularly Genesis 2. Genesis, or excuse me, marriage is not a human invention, it is a divine revelation. And we're going to see this more in the weeks to come about what our marriages are used for. But here's, ladies, what I want you to think about, for those of you who are marriage, considering marriage, as you look, wives submitting to their husbands within the context of a Christian marriage shows that Christ is Lord and brings glory to Him. That is, it reveals the glory of Christ and His bride, the church. You realize in your marriage, you are revealing the very glory of Christ and His church. Ladies, there is thing, and I'll say it again, there are things you do in your marriage no man can ever do. And I don't just mean physical childbirth. God has put you in a position intentionally to show His glory by the way in which you live within the context of your marriage. I pray that these just 10, and they're not exhaustive, of what submission doesn't mean, helps us understand boundaries and wisdom within our marriage. But that doesn't excuse us either of not honoring what the Lord calls us to, which for you ladies, that means to live in, in submission within your marriage to the leadership of your husband in wise and godly ways, because it's as to the Lord. All right, Father, we just thank you for this time together. I pray, Lord, help us. Father, help us to live in godly marriages. Help us, Father. Let us not be in marriages that don't show the glory of Christ and His church. Father, we, we confess for those of us that are husbands, our sin at times robs you of the glory that you want to show through our marriages. And Father, the same for the wives among us, that, that at times our sin robs you of the glory that you want to show through our marriages. So Father, make us wise. Work in our lives so that your grace finishes the work that started. That it finishes in us the heart of being like Christ. May the world see in our marriages the glory of Christ and His church. It's in Jesus' name we pray and by the Holy Spirit. Amen.